Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to get to the, the very last stage of the chapter today uh, because this is the last of our sessions together uh, with you guys as an older group. So I'm going to read from verse 21 up to verse 26 uh, and then we will get into what it has to say to us. This is Jesus with the 12, Jesus having a particular time with them, a special downtime with his closest crew so that he can instruct them about the big things, about the important things, about the main things, who he is and who they are and what they're called to do because of what he's come to do. And so he takes time, he takes time out, he gets away from the crowd and he, he makes for a, a dramatic bit of teaching. And my clock on the platform has not started uh, and so I'm going to go on for about a year today. So maybe we could just put a time on there. Thank you guys, that's helpful. Okay, so let me read to you uh, from verse 21. It says this, from that time, what it means when it says from that time, it means from, from the point that we got to yesterday. When it says from that time, it means after having clarified who he is, and after having clarified what his mission is, namely the church, what we talked about yesterday, after that time, after he got things clear, after he established things and laid the foundations and cleared the decks, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? You could say that what's happening in this part of the story is, is Jesus is, is like a... I guess like a, a driver of a bus taking some passengers on a journey and they got on the bus a few miles earlier and the number on the bus said something, uh, sorry, the front of the bus had a number on it and a destination and he, he as the bus driver is authorized to change the destination, change the number on the front. And so what he does is he stops the bus, he changes the destination on the front, he takes the disciples off the bus and says, come around the front, take a good look at the new destination, and then decide whether to climb back on board again. That's, that's kind of what's happening in Matthew chapter 16. You see, up until this point, the general atmosphere around Jesus, the general uh, way that people have been talking about him, 
amongst the crowds, the, the way that, you know, I guess the kind of Twitter feed, the, the, the Facebook posts, the, the, the Snapchat pictures, the, the, the kind of hashtag underneath would have always been, come and see, come and see, come and see, come and see. It would have been the whisper on, on everyone's lips across Galilee and down into Judea, you've got to come and see. This, this man does miracles. This man, he, he faces up to the authorities. This man, he, he teaches about God with such power. This man is like no one we've ever seen before. Come and see. And there are literally places in the Gospels where that very slogan is used. Come and see, come and see. It's just that at this point, Jesus' slogan slightly changes. It turns into hashtag, come and die. Come and die. And maybe there are a few less retweets, but that's definitely the tone of, of the rest of this chapter here. Come, come and die. And it's like he's saying to his disciples, okay, just so you know, the number on the I want you to take a good look. I want you to see what the destination is so you know what it is that we're coming on board for. Because this thing, this is about to go serious. This is about to take, be taken to another level. And I want you guys to know it. I want you to embrace it. I want you to respond to it. I want you to rise to it with courage, with, with confidence, with knowledge of where we are headed. And really, the, the way that he does this is he, well, the way that the, the Matthew, the gospel writer does it, is he sets it out, I think, in three key headings. There are three features of Jesus' mission that come through clearly in this little chunk that we read together. Three. The first of them is that it is a public mission. The second is that it is a painful mission. And the third, the third is that it is a profitable mission. We'll start with the public one. And that's what you get from verse 21. It's very simple. It's where he's, he's, uh, he's saying to them, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem. Now that in itself would have conjured up all kinds of thoughts in the minds of his disciples because they knew that Jerusalem was the center of everything for them. They knew that Jerusalem was the big apple. It was the kind of uh, the metropolitan urban center uh, that they'd grown up knowing about as young Jews. Jerusalem was the big city. Jerusalem was the public place. It was where the king was. It was where the Roman representatives were. It was where the scribes were based. It was where the teachers of the law and the leaders of the people were based. It was the center of power, the center of culture, probably the center of a lot of commerce as well. What happened in Jerusalem was public. And Jesus was saying, we're going public. We're going to the city. We are going global with this thing. I'm, I'm not going to lead you guys forever into the woods. I'm not going to lead you into caves. I'm not going to spend time building a cult of people who are only ever on the sidelines of society. I want a people who are ready to go public. And we need to understand that this is the story that the Bible puts before us. The Bible is about a kingdom that begins to replace the other kingdoms of this world. It begins to take authority and shape and influence in the midst of real society. We, we know that Jesus was born in a very humble situation, in, in a manger, in a stable, probably a cave of some sort. It was a very out-of-the-way uh, situation, a humiliating, almost shameful way to be born. Not born in a palace, not born in Jerusalem, born out on the edges. And he was raised in a town called Nazareth about whom people used to say, can anything good come from Nazareth? 
By the way, a friend of mine who leads a church in Berlin uh, that we planted, he had, a friend, he had a guy in the congregation once when he preached from this story and he talked about, can anyone, anything good come from Nazareth? This guy came up to him at the end and says, I'm from Nazareth. So he, he immediately had to sort of, well, obviously some good things come from Nazareth, but Jesus, Jesus himself came from a nowhere place. And we, we often get excited about the fact, quite rightly, that Christianity starts in, in, in a humble situation. It starts in a far-off, marginalized, on the edge of society kind of place. That shows that God is great because he doesn't need to start in a palace, in a headquarters, in parliament. He can start something out in the backwards which no one notices. He can start something in the wilderness, in the desert, and still take the world over within a generation. God's that great. But make it clear in your mind, make no mistake, the destination of the kingdom includes, involves, even focuses on key places of influence. The, the, the gospel writer Luke starts his story with Mary, a peasant girl in Nazareth. He finishes his story in Acts chapter 28, years and years later, he wrote two books, Luke 1 and Luke 2. Luke 2 is called Acts. Acts 28 finishes with the apostle Paul in Rome the center of the world as far as those people were concerned at that time. And, and that's the, distance, the, the destination, the trajectory that the gospel takes. God wants his message, his kingdom, his values, his heartbeat, his people to make their way into every niche of society, every place of influence, every place where culture is being shaped. God wants for that for our generation. I make this point because I long for you guys as a, as a new day generation to have within your heart a longing for the gospel to make profound impact on world affairs. That's the direction it should be going. It belongs it belongs in those places. The gospel is suited for world transformation. And that means that we need to take the plunge and understand we're going public with this. There were other groups of uh, spiritual people. There were other radical religious groups at Jesus' time that didn't see it this way. Groups like the Essenes. Who, who, who gathered in the Qumran, and they were people that were very different. They kind of led monastic lifestyles on the fringes. They, they kind of took pride in being the people of God. We are the true people of God, which means that we don't do anything with other people. We keep away from worldly people because we are the people of God. Very often we, we can think that way. We're the people of God, therefore we mustn't really be in the world. But Jesus doesn't think that way. Jesus wants us to be in the world. Not of this world, but certainly in the world. And I, I urge you to be ambitious in your prayers, in your hopes and dreams, not for your own glory, but for his, that you might be able to shape and influence the world that God has called us to through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This thing is to go public. For some of us, the first simple step in that is actually we just need to go public as Christians. Do you know that for many of you in this tent, the, the real test that you know that you're facing over the next few weeks is that when you go back to school or college, you will face the decision of whether to tell your friends about Jesus, whether to tell them that you're a Christian, you became a Christian at New Day, or, or you've been a Christian for years, but you've never really had the courage to tell them so. You've been a secret Christian. You, you've, never, you've never been able to be open and public with your Jesus. 
Jesus would say to you, this is public or it's not real. I want you to be prepared to be public. I want you to share this. And you might be terrified of the prospect. Remember what we've been saying, God empowers us to obey. This is what happens. God gives us the courage to obey. He will. If you say to him, God, I don't know how I could do that. Trust me, if you come to him asking him for help with that, things will happen. If you truly long for help. Some of you, it's as simple as being baptized in water. I believe that hundreds of you in this room will need to be baptized in water over the next few months. You need to go back to your youth leaders, your churches saying, I've never been baptized in water. That is a way of going public. It's a way of saying to Jesus, I mean this. I'm publicly following you. I'm crossing that line of public mission with you. And those are some ways that we can apply this major principle. Let me move on to the second though, because I want to make sure there's time This is a public mission, but it is also a painful mission, a painful mission. We see that in verse 21, but we also see it in 22. So we're jumping right down to verse 22. Peter took Jesus aside. So Jesus has been talking about going to Jerusalem and suffering many things and being killed. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this this, this shall never happen to you. Now, this is a fascinating moment if you consider. Because Peter has just been given a really, really cool job. Do you remember what we talked about yesterday and the day before? He used to be called Simon by Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. He got, he got a new job, he got a new name. He's, he's now Peter the Rock on whom the church is built. This is an exciting time in Peter's life. He's on the up. He's got a new responsibility. He's got a new status. He's got, he's got new tasks. And it's his first day at the office today as Peter. You're speaking to Peter. And it's really exciting. First day at the office, what does he do? Uh-uh, bad first day. He rebukes Jesus. That's usually a bad move, okay? In my experience, it's never gone well for me when I've tried to rebuke Jesus. If I try and tell Jesus off, one of us is in the wrong, and it's never him. And Peter obviously hasn't quite understood. He comes straight to his master, who's just given him this new identity, and he says to him, never, Lord, rebukes him, far be it from you. What's going on here? Why is Peter so shaken up? Why is he so worried about the prospect of Jesus going to the cross? Well, I suggest that a big part of it is that Peter knows that what happens to Jesus is probably going to happen to him. He wasn't prepared for this number on the bus. He wasn't prepared for this story, this destination. To be clear, let's let's reflect on the fact that up till now, Jesus has been very, very good news for Peter. So far, Jesus has come into Peter's life and it has really been cool. I mean, really good. Do you remember when Jesus met Peter? He was a failing fisherman. That's what he was. He was probably watching night after night as no fish were getting caught. And he's thinking, if I don't make a catch this month, I'm in serious debt. We're going to have to lay some people off. This is a tough business anyway. and, And they're not biting this year. It is not going well. My business is in tatters. I'm in trouble. And along comes this preacher from, from the other side of Galilee. And, and, and it's like, well, I, I don't know who he is, but he, he tells Peter what to do. And he catches so many fish, he doesn't know what to do. 
And Jesus has saved his business. Jesus is good. Jesus is good for business. Next thing he takes Jesus home to his house. And normally when Peter goes home, his mother-in-law is doing the cooking. And today she's sick. She's so sick she can't do the cooking. This is all there in the Gospels. What happens? Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus heals the cook. She can cook again. Jesus is so good. Now, I, I am really enjoying the whole ride with Jesus now. He's, he's, he's saved my business. He's sorted out my chef. We are, we are riding. Jesus has just only been good so far. And have you heard since then, more recent news, he's also given me this major role. I'm his sidekick. I'm his right-hand guy. I am the rock, Peter. He's not even Simon Barjana anymore. He's like Beyonce or Adele. He's just got one word, Peter. And he's kind of getting you know, tour dates in place and his Facebook page is going crazy. I'm Peter. I'm, just, just, I'm going to be vice president of the world any minute because we all know what happens. Jesus is the miracle worker. He's the Messiah. He's just admitted it to us. And so presumably he's going to ride on down into Jerusalem, but not to get killed. He's going to ride down so that he can stick it to the Romans. So that he could kill other people and we could join in. I mean, he's so powerful, he could probably just sort of bring fire down. He might teach us to do it too. We'll all be like the Avengers. We'll all just show up and send people away with power and just move our hands. We're like Darth Vader, just move our lips and we'll move our head and... It's, it's just so exciting. The whole, everything's going so well. Now I'm on Jesus' team. And now he's talking about suffering many things. He's talking about being arrested, falsely accused. He's even talking about being killed. This, this, this does not fit Peter's plan for his best life ever. What's going on here? Well, well what's going on basically is that Peter, like everybody else in his generation and many, many people since, has not really understood the story that the Bible tells. We, we, we tend to <laughs> stick our hands over our eyes when we see bits of the Bible that, that don't really fit. When you consider what the Bible says about God's heroes in the Old Testament, like Joseph and David and, and Daniel, the way that he treats them, the suffering that they go through is quite a big feature. And when the, the Bible describes how the Messiah is going to live and what's going to happen to the Messiah, especially in books like Isaiah, they should not have been surprised if they were reading their Bibles accurately to, to find out that Jesus was going to suffer. They should have seen it, but the problem is that they don't and we don't read our Bibles necessarily with the open eyes and open ears that we should. It's like every time Jesus talked about suffering, the disciples were going, la, 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 la. We just pretend that bit didn't come. We just we didn't hear that. We didn't hear that. I mean, that's, that's so clearly the case because even after Jesus was crucified, even after the resurrection, you get places like uh, Luke chapter 24 where there were some disciples walking to Emmaus and they were describing to each other how they felt perplexed and confused and, and disappointed and disillusioned by what had taken place back in Jerusalem that Jesus the, the Messiah, the Christ, he's been killed. This doesn't make any sense. We're so perplexed. Jesus himself meets them on the roadside. They don't recognize him. You, you wouldn't recognize someone you'd just seen crucified three days before. The whole thing is completely beyond them. And he sits down with them and talks it through. And they say, look, 
we are so confused. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know why this happened to him. Jesus says to them in Luke chapter 24, Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? What's he saying? He's saying, guys, you just haven't even been reading your Bibles properly. You should have expected that this would happen. You should have understood that the way of Yahweh, the way that God saves and rescues, the way that God delivers, the way that God breaks in and transforms, will be through suffering. It will be a pathway of suffering that the Master, the Messiah, the servant of God is called to walk. And those that walk it with me will know the same. They'll carry the same cross, the same burden. And Peter, if you, if you hadn't seen that number on the bus, it, it isn't really anyone else's fault. It's because you weren't looking. There is a destination that includes and involves suffering. Martin Luther, hundreds of years ago, 500 years ago, he used to talk about two ways that we could try and know God. One was the, what he called the theology of glory. And the other was the theology of the cross. The theology of glory, according to Martin Luther, is basically, we, we are more or less okay, we're a bit messed up, but we're fixable. And so we need a nice old God to come alongside and just fix a few problems and sort our lives out to help us. And we get to know God through the way he does nice things for us. That's how we know him. We know him really by things that we see in our lives that show that he's nice. He's kind of characterizing it as what he called the theology of glory. He said, the truth is that that doesn't really introduce you to the God of the Bible because the way to know God is through what he called the theology of the cross, which says a slightly different message. It says, no, we're not just nice people that need a bit of fixing. We are utterly broken utterly in need in fact the Bible says dead in our sins and what is needed is not a makeover what is needed is a cross what is needed is death what is needed is blood what is needed is God giving himself in sacrifice this is the way that God has shown himself to the world and so the way that we can know God must be through the cross if we try to know God through a theology of glory we will definitely come to points in life where we're stuck we are just utterly thrown because it won't fit into our lives to accept and understand that there's a suffering side, there's, there's a cross to carry, there's pain to endure. And we'll be saying, God is good because, well, he's good because I got promoted last week. He's good because I got into the right school. God is good because I got, <laughs> I got nine A stars in my GCSEs. God is good because I got the ASs. I got the, I got the, the ones I wanted. God is good because I got into the, the uni that I applied for. My favorite option. God is good because she loves me. God is good because I'm going out with him. This guy I've been noticing for months. God's good. God's good because I'm feeling happy. God's good because my health is strong. God's good because my family's together. So God must be good. 
You know what I'm going to say, don't you? What do you do with that theology when you don't get the GCSEs you wanted? You don't get into that university you chose. You don't get the the ASs. You don't get the girlfriend. You you get split up by your boyfriend. Your family doesn't hold together. You don't get healed. Is God good? Is he, is, he, is he good? I'm not sure. I don't feel his goodness. I prayed for ages and he didn't answer. I, I really prayed. I wept. I, I, I even gave up food for a bit. I really and, and nothing. Is he good? I'm, I can't be sure if he's really good. What's happened, friends, is you've built your life on a theology of glory. Jesus is telling his disciples that's, that's not the right theology. He wants them to understand He's come to rescue and to deliver and to save, but he's doing it through a cross. And because his life is cross-shaped, so will be the lives of his followers. If they persecuted me, that they will persecute you. In this life, you will have much trouble, he said. Fear not, for I have overcome the world. In this world, you will have much trouble. We, we need the right theology so that friends at all times, in all circumstances, whatever news comes, whatever happens in our headlines, whatever next horrifying catastrophe might shock us from television screens as another reporter has to tell us about an, an atrocity in a city not far away. What are we going to say, friends, at those times? Are we going to say, I'm not sure if God's good. He's good at New Day. New Day, God feels good there. It feels good at New Day. doesn't feel good when I'm looking at this headline. Is God good? You think it felt good at Calvary? Think it felt good on the cross? You know what? At the cross, everybody on planet Earth was a theologian of glory. Everybody. Everybody. All the, all the enemies, definitely, all Jesus' enemies, if you're the son of God, come down from there. That's, what they, that's their theology right there. If God is with you, you won't suffer. Your suffering can't be God. According to my theology, you're a fraud because you're on the cross. You know, Muslims still believe that. They say, well, Jesus can't have been crucified. It must have been, it must have been a mistake. Someone else must have been crucified instead because a prophet wouldn't suffer like this. This can't be right. This theology of glory gets in everywhere. Everybody, even his friends, they couldn't cope, they couldn't understand him. Peter, right up till this point, he ran away, didn't understand the cross. Except one man. There was one lonely man on planet Earth, out of all the millions and billions that day, who saw what was happening. And he was the thief that was getting killed next to Jesus. Do you know what he said? He said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That is a very weird thing to say to a man being executed. (laughs) To a man heaving his body up with nails in his wrists, sweat and blood pouring over him, wounds so horrifying you wouldn't want to look at him, couldn't recognize him. His mother bawling her eyes out in front of him, pool of blood all over the floor, naked, humiliated, covered with shame, being jeered at, bits of other people's spit still coming down his body, crown of thorns stuck into his brow. 
And this man says, you remember me when you come into your kingdom. What's he talking about? He knows something. He's a theologian of the cross. He's seen it for what it is. He knows this is the way that God saves. This is the way that God delivers. This is how God's kingdom breaks out. It's through suffering. It's through the cross. It's through death. I have no other hope. I'm a thief. I deserve this. I have nothing in myself. I just cast myself on the mercy of this man to my side. I say, remember me. That's a Christian. A Christian is someone who has no hope in themselves, no hope in their own personal ambitions, in their own dream, their own destiny. They've laid all that aside. They've died to it. And they're putting all their trust in a man who's coming into a kingdom. And I will inherit that kingdom with him. I'll share in his spoils. I'll be with him in a new heaven and a new earth. That's my only hope. And that, friends, is a Christian. But this isn't the only thing. Jesus, Jesus turns to Peter. He has to rebuke him. It's a tough moment for Peter because Jesus turns to him. and He doesn't like theology of glory. Get behind me, Satan. Which does seem a little harsh. I mean, maybe it would have been nice if you just said, get behind me, Peter. Or even get behind me, Simon. I mean, he could have relegated him just back to Simon. Okay, you were Peter. That was a duff move. So back to Simon. We'll, 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 just for probation, we might call you Peter next year. We'll see how you do. No, he goes right down a few levels. Get behind me. Satan! What's going on here? Jesus is firm, fixed, clear. I will not have that way of thinking in my kingdom. My people, my church, we're building a new king. We're starting a new loaf of bread. We don't want the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Remember that? He wants clear discipleship. He wants people who know they get this. We're following a crucified master. But let me finish <laughs> with, with the fact that this is a mission that is profitable. It's a public mission. It's a painful mission. It's a profitable mission. It's a profitable mission. And, and we, we get that from verses 25, 26. Let me read to you. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus talks like this all the time. It's a bit strange. It's a bit hard for us to get our heads around because sometimes he, he says things like, take up your cross daily and follow me. Other times he says things like, come to me if you're weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am humble of heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. That, that's a strange concoction right there, yeah? One minute he's saying, if you want to come with me, it's death. Come and die. Other times he's saying, come and find relief. Come and find joy. Come and be happy. I want to bring you into good things. Which one is true? Which of these is the right answer? Why is Jesus kind of schizophrenic about the offer that he makes? Well, he's not. He's, he's perfectly clear. 
the problem isn't with him, the problem is in here with us. Because ever since the beginning, we have switched the price tags. We've misevaluated what makes for joy. We've got wrong what makes for happiness. Jesus is the one who knows how to give joy. He's where the good things come from. Jesus, Jesus is the happiest person. You know in the Psalms, it says in Psalm 45, you are anointed with joy above all your companions. Talking about Jesus. That's poetic language for you are the happiest man there ever was and ever will be. Jesus Christ. If I want to learn how to catch fish, I go to someone who's got a lot of fish. If I want to learn how to make money, I go to someone who's got a lot of money. If I want to make lots of friends, I go to someone who seems to have a lot of friends. If I want to find joy, where should I go? Who's the person in history that's most truly joyful? It's Jesus. He truly is the most happy person. He says, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, that he, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So yeah, the cross, the theology of the cross, the suffering of the cross is important, but friends, it's a bit like the skin or the peel on an orange. It's the stuff on the outside. You've just got to go through it. <laughs> you, you press through it. It's not the main thing. The main thing isn't suffering and pain. The main thing is the giving of himself. The most joyful, happy person there's ever been. He wants to give himself to us. Our response should therefore be to trust in the midst of the reality that we know we'll suffer. We know we'll follow a master who will lead us into some pain. But to know in all of it, we still win. We still gain. We're not losers. We're not the sacrificial heroes. We're not even that. We're not even the great mysterious Christians who, who go through pain and, and, and suffering and look very like, you know, like martyrs, just tough, it's so difficult being a Christian. Not at all. We don't even get a chance to do that. Because we always are in touch with the person who has the most joy and he's able to provide it for our souls at all times. He said to the disciples, I've come that you might have life. And life in all its fullness. He talked about his joy. He said, I want my joy to be in you. This is the offer. This is what he comes to bring. Our issue is so often that we simply don't trust that his joy is enough for us. We don't trust that he knows how to give us happiness. We think, if I have to give up my girlfriend, if I have to not have sex before I get married, if I have to tell my friends that I'm a Christian and suffer their taunts, if I have to give money away when we do an offering tomorrow, if I have to lose all kinds of chunks of my life, I'm a loser. I am going to lose. I tell you, it's the precise opposite. You know, Jesus told that story in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found treasure in a field. <laughs> and in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. And you just notice that phrase, in his joy. You ever seen someone selling all their possessions with a smiley face? Ever seen anyone look happy having to give stuff up? It's a strange sight. It's not common. Normally we'd be thinking, I have to get rid of all my stuff, I've got to sell all my stuff. This is a terrible day. He says, in his joy. In his joy. Because he knows that what he gets, the treasure he's found. It relativizes all of the sorrow, all of the pain, because I have Christ. I have Christ. My heroes, and hopefully your heroes too, are people who have lived their lives pouring out everything for Jesus. 
and say at the end of their life, I feel like I never made a sacrifice. So how do you do that? How do you, how do you learn to do that? You do it by trusting him. You trust what he says about joy. Let me just do this with an illustration and then I'll finish. Perhaps the musicians could come and join me now. I, I live near the beach, but the beach in Brighton has not got a lot of sand. The beach in Brighton is covered by pebbles that were invented by Satan. And on a really hot sunny day, a really lovely hot sunny day, you want to go down the sea. Really hot day, you want to go down and swim. But to get down to the water, <sighs> I've got to walk. It's a weird sight. You see a lot of people on, on Brighton Beach, usually pasty white Englishmen like me, going like this, <clears throat> nimbly trying to kind of get through and occasionally kind of hopping about six feet in the air because they put their foot on some broken glass or something worse. You finally get down to the water and the water itself is, is, is like the trouble has hardly started because the water in Brighton it also comes from, no, I won't say it comes from Satan, that's too much, it's going too far. It does come from the Arctic Pole though. So if you stick your feet in, you actually turn into Iceman. It is unbelievable. But you still do it. And you, you go up to your ankles and you feel, ah, it's horrible. You go up to your knees and you go, ah, this is still horrible. You go up to your waist. This is still so horrible. I can't cope. I can't handle it. It's so hard. And you go up to your, your nipples. How many times has nipples been said from this platform? And you're, you're in so much pain. It's just, unbear- it's just unbearable. And then you throw your whole head under. Your shoulders, your body, everything. You just throw yourself under. And you're in agony. Your feet from the glass and the sharks underneath and everything evil. And you stick your head up. And you go... Ah, I can do this. This is nice. What happened? The conflict ended. When you got half warm and half freezing cold, you can't cope. It's when you throw yourself in. You trust the water. You trust its pain. It's shocking pain. But you find a new level of joy, fun. It's an adventure. You discover something new. Some of you, you've got to make some decisions today, tomorrow, on your way home. And it's going to feel shockingly painful for some of you. You're going to quit some things. Probably going to disappoint some people. Might offend one or two people. You're going to get baptized, literally go into the water. You're going to feel nervous, scared, think, can I really do this? Probably you can't in yourself. But what, the part that you play is trust. That's what you do. You trust him. You throw yourself into obedience and you trust him. Jesus says, if you lose your life for my sake, oh, you'll find it. <laughs> you'll find better, better still. Let's stand together, shall we?